Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is part of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast series. And today we are very lucky to have Anne Case on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, which she co-authored with Angus Deaton, called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. It's out from Princeton University Press in 2020. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you very much, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely my pleasure. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. um, I am a professor emeritus at Princeton, but I'm still teaching there in the master's program in the School of Public and International Affairs. I've spent most of my working life as a professor at Princeton, uh, trained as an economist, uh, but with interest in social science more broadly. Thank you very much for that. So let's turn directly to the book. And one of the things I liked about your book is that it begins with an unexpected observation, a kind of anomaly in the data. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So Angus, my co-author, and I, who are married, uh, we spend every August in Montana uh, taking a working holiday in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. And we were there working on a paper on uh, suicide, actually, because we wanted to see whether or not uh, the measures that we currently have on self-reported life evaluation or self-reported happiness what, what are they picking up? And we thought, well, they should at least be picking up the fact that in places uh, where suicides are high, those ought to be places, we thought, where people say that their lives are not going especially well. So when we started looking at the data, we were really surprised because where we were sitting in, in Madison County, Montana, had one of the highest suicide rates in the country. And where we spend most of the year, which is Mercer County, New Jersey, where Princeton is, has one of the lowest. And we thought, whoa, we come out here, it's beautiful, the mountains are gorgeous, people seem really happy. Why is it the case that uh, people here are more likely to take their own lives? So that sort of uh, sort of was the anomaly was that we just assumed that people in the East must be more likely and people along the Rocky Mountains must be less likely. And it actually turns out that it's the other way around. And to be a little bit more specific, you then launched into an analysis of three kinds of causes of mortality. You call them jointly deaths of despair, that is suicides, drug overdoses, and liver disease caused by excessive use of alcohol. And could you describe the way the trends were going prior to, I think the right date is about 1998, and then what happened to those rates after that period? Sure. In fact, I should um, pick up the story a, a tiny bit before that, which is that we saw that Suicide rates, when we looked at them for the country as a whole, were going up and had been going up since uh, the mid-1990s. And we thought, whoa, let's, let's put this in perspective. So we thought, like, what's happening to mortality rates overall for people in middle age? 
And we were really surprised to find that mortality rates for whites in America had been going up since the late 1990s. And that's just not supposed to happen. All over the rich world, mortality rates in midlife were falling really nicely. And they were falling really nicely at that point for Hispanics in America and for uh, Black non-Hispanics. But for whites, they, they, they went the wrong way. And we were stunned. We thought, this, if, if this is really happening, somebody must already know this. So we, we took these results around to people we knew at medical schools. We talked to demographers. And it came as a surprise to everyone. And then when we looked at, well, what's actually causing these suicide, or what's actually causing these mortality rates for whites in midlife to go up, we found that the three causes of death that were rising most rapidly were, as you were saying, suicide, drugs, and alcohol. So these we thought of as being, uh, we kind of bin them together because they're all, in a sense, death by one's own hand. Um, it's also sort of hard uh, for a coroner or a medical examiner to sometimes know whether or not this death was um, intentional or whether this was an accident. So when you bin them together, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether it was intentional or it was an accident. It was something that should not have happened. And so we decided we would look in further. And so we started to dig and dig and dig to try to figure out why is this happening? And at that point in time, it's changed a bit since then, which we can talk about. But why between the early 1990s and the mid-20-teens were these rates going up for this most privileged group in the U.S.? This, the whites on average have more education, whites on average have higher incomes, they hold more status. So what was happening to this group? Um, I could go on. I'm sure. Oh, no, please go ahead. Okay. Um, a very important part of the story is when, when we say this group of whites, it turns out that uh, uh, these um, um, more death by one's own hand from these causes was not happening for people who had been to college and gotten a four-year college degree. So if you define, if you divide people into a BA, not BA category, people with a BA looked like people in the rest of the rich world, mortality rates were falling, but for people without a bachelor's degree, the rates were rising. A little bit, um, uh, you know, people who had had some college uh, looked a little bit better than people who had just finished high school, but they looked a lot more like people who finished high school than they looked like people with a BA. So for most of the work, we divide into this group that had, was blessed with the BA and the group um, that that was not. And then we found that it's not just that excess mortality has, has been a cloud that has come and landed over this group. It's also the case that their lives have been coming apart for a very long time and mostly coming apart under the radar. There are these large nationally representative surveys uh, run by the CDC called things like the National Health Interview Survey or the Behavioral 
factors um, surveillance system survey. And um, what they showed was year on year, people without a BA were reporting more pain. They were reporting poor mental health. They were reporting that they were having difficulty socializing with friends. None of that was happening for people with a BA, but for people without a BA, their their physical health, their mental health, and then also um, these uh, deaths of despair had all come and landed on them. So specifically then, you concentrate on the cohort of middle-aged white men without bachelor's degrees. And in the book, you say it's 38% of the working age population in the U.S. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's actually men and women. It's really interesting, Marshall, because the, um, the press, when they were writing up the papers that uh, we wrote, that um, we uh, made part of the book by digging further into it, when the press would write up the research, they would say men and women, which is right. But then the headline writers would say white men dying. And uh, it turns out, I think they were doing that because they couldn't imagine that women would kill themselves in those ways. And if you go back far enough in the day, women did not uh, kill themselves with drugs and alcohol and suicide. But that has changed. So while men are more likely to kill themselves in these ways, um, the trend uh, of the increase over this period of time was nearly identical for men and women. And in the first work that we did on this, we looked at like one specific age group because we wanted to be very precise. But what we found when we dug into it for the book, that it's it's almost not that you want to look at it as an age group, like that, you know, people when they get to their mid-50s are suddenly at high risk. A better way to think about it was actually to think about it relative to the year you were born. So that people who were born in 1940, who would have been 60, say, in year 2000, had a lower risk of dying from one of these deaths of despair than people who were born in 1950, who would have been 60, say, in or um, in 2010. Um, for every birth cohort, the later the birth cohort, the more likely they were to die a death of, a death of despair um, at any given age. And the differences are, are quite enormous for people without a BA. For people with a BA, there's no birth cohort effect at all. Um, you see sort of what Durkheim might have predicted back when he wrote about suicide in 1897, which was that suicides rise with age and then they sort of level off. He actually would have thought that they would rise with age till the end of age. But what we're finding is that it's if you were born in 1970, your risk is higher than if you were born in 1960. And if you were born in 1960, your risk is higher than if you were born in 1950. So it's not just like the baby boomers. You know, they all went through the summer of love. They started to take drugs. Once they exit stage right, everything's going to be okay again. No, that's actually not what we're finding. We're finding it's worse for Gen X, worse we're still for Gen Y and we're still for like the millennials. 
So there's a generational aspect to this group, as you say, they're in particular birth cohorts. Is there also a geographic aspect? Are, are they more highly represented in parts of the country or in rural or urban areas? Yeah, we would have thought that. In fact, we did think that before we actually started looking at the data. Um, and there are a couple of ways to answer that question. One is that in every state in the U.S., mortality rates from each one of those causes taken separately was higher in the late 20-teens than it was in 2000. So the rates have gone up everywhere. Now, which of these three, suicide, drugs, alcohol, is um, the poison that gets picked is a little bit different state by state. So, for example, in West Virginia, mortality from drug overdose uh, went sky high, uh, but mortality from alcoholic liver disease didn't. Whereas in, for example, Mississippi, rates from alcohol um, increased quite dramatically and rates from drug overdose less so. So we think of it as being more or less a pick-your-poison um, kind of um, problem here, where some people are soothing the beast with drugs, some people are soothing the beast with alcohol, and people who just can't soothe the beast end up um, killing themselves. So it's, a, it's, it's grim, um, but uh, what we also... Uh, found was that the press would like to make this a story about rural areas. And so like a reporter will call on the phone and say, I want to cover this crisis. Tell me where in West Virginia I should go. And, and I want to say to the person, look, why don't you go to Baltimore City? Um, it's a lot closer to where you live and it's happening there too. Um, so in all levels of urbanization from, you know, big metropolitan areas through to rural areas, the, the, the trends are almost identical between them. Um, I think maybe the press wants to cover the rural areas because, again, like what they thought about women was, gosh, if it's happening in rural areas, that's really stunning because, Rural areas should be places where people are really healthy and there's clean air and uh, life is beautiful. I, I think maybe that's why the rural areas got, got special attention, but it's really um, a problem. Uh, I'll have to say the first week that the Princeton police had naloxone in the police cars, that's Narcan, that can bring people back from an opioid overdose. Uh, they used it, you know, on a, a, a woman who had nodded off on a park bench in, in Princeton. So we're, we're kind of like a fringe metropolitan area, but it is everywhere. So then this is a generalized phenomenon. It does have this birth cohort aspect. I wonder if you know what percentage, that's not really the best way to put it, let me put it like this. So suicides, drug overdoses, and liver disease are up for this cohort of people without bachelor's degrees across the nation. What is the relative weight in the increase of the total increase of suicides, drug overdoses, and liver disease? And I ask this only because 
again, as I explained in the pre-interview, I work with people who uh, have substance abuse problems. And, and what I saw was a, a tremendous increase in the use of specifically heroin and, and drug overdoses. Absolutely. Um, un, unfortunately, and this is, we cover this in the book uh, at, at some length. Unfortunately, um, the Food and Drug Administration allowed a drug to come onto the market in the U.S., which is essentially heroin and pill form with an FDA label on it called Oxycontin. Um, it is one and a half times stronger than morphine. And uh, the makers of Oxycontin, Purdue Pharmaceutical, uh, sent marketers around targeted areas of the country where they thought that there would be demand for this product, and they pushed it really hard. They were just legal drug pushers. And we had an, a prescription opioid epidemic that hit this group that we've been talking about, whites without a BA, very hard. So it's what started, though, as um, a prescription opioid epidemic gave way to a, a heroin epidemic after the prescription opioid was altered so that it was much less like much you were much less able to crush it and uh, snort it or or inject it um, doctors were advised to turn the taps off instead of giving people a, a jelly jam jar full of oxycontin when they had their teeth cleaned um, and so as the taps got turned off of the prescription opioids, uh, this perfect substitute was out there, which is heroin. It was coming in from uh, Mexico. It's pure. It's cheap. People tell me it's cheaper than what my generation would have called pot. I guess people now call it weed. Um, and so uh, this prescription opioid epidemic gave way to a heroin epidemic, which has now given way to a fentanyl epidemic, which is thought to be 100 times stronger than heroin. Just a little bit it can be deadly. It can be mixed with cocaine or with heroin. It's sold in little, um, in little uh, pill capsules as, as Oxycontin on the black market. Uh, when it's not, it's actually something that's much deadlier than Oxycontin alone. So the, pres the, op the drug epidemic, the opioid drug epidemic, is certainly a big part of the story. But in the book, we argue that deaths from drugs and from alcohol and from suicide were all rising before the FDA approved Oxycontin back in 1995. And that what it did was that uh, it was being unleashed onto a group of people who were desperate to find something to help them get through the day, get through their lives. And so it was really throwing um, gasoline on a fire that was already burning and making it infinitely worse. So we have a lot of uh, negative things to say about people um, for profit making money off of people becoming addicted and dying from prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. So would it be fair to say that the 
increases in suicide for this cohort are 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 reasonably large. The increases in alcoholism are reasonably large, but the increases in drug overdoses are very large. Yes. That is an absolutely uh, correct uh, uh, way of thinking about it. Suicides, though, I want to say we're one of the only countries in the world where suicide rates are rising. So even in the countries where people think about um, as being countries where suicides take place, Japan, uh, Sweden, uh, we've now risen above. Our rates are higher than they are there. Um, and we're up, we're soaring up into the range of the countries of the former Soviet Union. Um, they're on their way down. We're on our way up. So unfortunately, um, it's it's also not the case that once this drug epidemic burns itself out, that everything's going to be okay. Um, we think that, and unfortunately, it's the case that unlike the COVID epidemic, which is horrible, but we're hoping that even in the state of New Jersey, we're going to get vaccines and that once we're looking at COVID in the rearview mirror, we're still going to have this epidemic to contend with. I agree with you completely because I was following the opioid statistics very closely before COVID hit, and they were not heading in the right direction. And then suddenly it just disappeared from the newspapers. Yeah. And and my understanding is that it continues to rise. That is the rates of mortality from drug overdoses. I, I haven't looked recently, but it's not heading in the right direction. That's You're exactly right here. What happened was in 2018, um, the drug overdoses appeared to take something of a holiday. They didn't go up for the first time in two decades. But then in the, by the middle of 2019, fentanyl moved west of the Mississippi River, um, and partly caused, I think, by the fact that it was much easier uh, for the drug dealers to mix fentanyl with black tar heroin than it had been before. So it is now a scourge on the West Coast the way it had been a scourge on the Eastern Seaboard. So some people look at the drug overdoses going up during the pandemic and saying it's all pandemic related. And no doubt some part of the increase is pandemic related. Uh, people who overdose now by themselves, who don't have someone there who can administer naloxone to them, uh, people who are isolated, people who can't get to 12-step meetings. Um, so no doubt this, the, this epidemic of, of COVID is making it worse, but it was moving in the wrong direction well before COVID ever hit. I'm glad you mentioned that because COVID, especially the isolation, has definitely exacerbated the problem. Again, as I say, I've been going to AA meetings for almost 20 years now. And one day there just weren't any AA meetings. And and the people that I was working with, I couldn't get in touch with them. I, I couldn't talk to them. And, you know, similarly, on, they have online meetings and those are fine, but it's no substitute for an, an actual meeting with actual survivors of this. And I, it doesn't surprise me in any way that, well, we'll see what happens after COVID. But drug overdoses and 
you know, deaths by liver disease and other sort of deaths, I, I, I have no doubt that they will in, increase as a result of the pandemic or the response to the pandemic. And partly caused by the, yeah, there's, you read a lot about people having quarantinis, right? So, oh. or happy hours with their friends or women who were uh, glass of wine a night drinkers who now suddenly find that it's beginning to take over. Um, again, I think it partly comes back to soothing the beast. And if if the need is much greater, people need to find some way of soothing themselves. And unfortunately, um, alcohol and drugs are there. I mean, from from my understanding of it, but you could correct me here, is that there's something you almost can't put into words. There's a magic about AA and a other 12-step programs, when people come together physically, um, being able to support one another, that that's a big part of it. And that, you know, Zoom doesn't, can't do that because you're not just not physically in the same space. I mean, I think you're correct. I want to make clear to everybody listening that I'm, I'm not a proponent of AA or any of these programs. Mm-hmm. I have benefited from them. Um, but I don't speak for AA, or I'm certainly uh, not in a position to recommend that anybody okay, yeah. uh, go to well, AA or NA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think you're right, and there's a word for it in AA. It's called fellowship. That's what you do after the meeting: is you talk to other people, and you go out for coffee with them or whatever you're going to do. But that that's all absent now. You know, so we think that in the book we make an argument that part of what's happened in the U.S. is that people's lives have become much more fragile, that um, we trace back the fact that people's lives are coming apart to changes in the labor market and the opportunities that people have if they have not been to college. So we know like globalization and automation have taken away some of those jobs. So, but if you don't have a a job that you feel like you're a part of something, um, in the U.S., that what that comes with is that it is much harder to get married. And this is something our friends in sociology had been telling us for a long time. But before we started this work, we thought, "Wow, that's really interesting." But we didn't really, it, other than that, it didn't make any connection to us. But once we started this work, we realized that if you don't have a job with prospects, um, or if one of you doesn't have a job with prospects, it's much harder to get married. So people move in together. Cohabitation is way up. Marriage rates are way down in this community. Uh, but they're fragile cohabitations. People split. Then they reform with with someone else. There'll be children. But then it, what you end up with is a situation where work life isn't stable, home life isn't stable, people have lost connection with their community, and we think lack of connection is really the name of the game. That's kind of what Durkheim would have said. Times of great social upheaval are times when people are at risk, and we see what's happened since um, going back at least as far as the as 1990, 
that seems to have happened in the U.S. and put people at much higher risk of these things happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing I liked about the book is that you discuss and ultimately, well, you don't dismiss them, but you say they are not important causal factors. What we might think of as possible correlates of this increase in mortality for this cohort. So uh, if I have it right, then absolute poverty, for example. Could you talk a little bit about that? Does that have any impact? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we thought, being economists, the two of us, Angus and I, that, well, if we look at poverty, if we look at a loss of income, if we look at unemployment, those will be the drivers and that we can look across the U.S. and we're going to be able to say in places that are currently in recession or in places where incomes aren't growing as quickly, that's what we'll, that's the places where we see people most at risk. But we don't see concurrent economic conditions as being correlated with these things. And we've found that other people who have followed beyond um, behind us, but have come in and filled in um, some of the gaps, don't find it either. Instead, what we think it is, is, for example, for the, at the median, at the 50% mark, uh, real wages for men have not risen in 50 years. That's 5-0 years. And for men without a bachelor's degree, they've been falling um, over time since at least the late 1970s, which is as far back as our data go. And we think that it's the long run effects. It's the fact that, you know, over time, uh, each successive birth cohort finds it harder and harder to find a good place to land in the labor market and make a life. So um, we think it's much more about the long run um, consequences of changes that started in the early 1970s. Um, with, uh, you know, starting with Japanese cars coming into the U.S. market and later, you know, uh, all sorts of manufacturing disappearing here and uh, turning up someplace else. Mm -hmm. So, I'm sorry. I was going to say, so that's absolute poverty. That is kind of the standard of living for this cohort. And that doesn't seem to explain it, although it might contribute to it. But you also have a very interesting part of the book where you discuss relative poverty, that is income inequality. Did you find any correlation there? No. And in fact, I didn't really answer your absolute poverty question very well. I'm sorry. sorry. Absolute poverty. It turns out that uh, until 2013, until fentanyl, until the third wave of this horrible drug epidemic we've been having, mortality rates for Black non-Hispanics were falling beautifully. They were still above whites. That's still, you know, uh, that's still a crime. That's still a horrible thing. But they were coming down very nicely. Um, Blacks are a lot more likely to be living in poverty than whites. Yet over this period, we were seeing deaths from drugs and deaths from alcohol falling in the black community and rising in the white community. Um, And we also didn't see that... uh, pockets of places that were um, more likely to have um, absolute poverty as being the places where this was um, much was more pronounced. 
So um, the next question you asked was about relative. Um, well, re relative well-being, and, and that's income inequality, because it's yeah. risen tremendously. So one might think, well, this is a response to uh, a feeling of being left behind while other people succeed. Is there any correlation between the increase in income inequality and the um, deaths of despair? Yeah, at the state level, we did not find that to be the case, that the states that were the most unequal, which include California and New York, were places where the deaths of despair were among the lowest. Um, so, but I think there is certainly something in what you say about um, whether or not people feel like they're being left behind. And that doesn't have to be at the state level. That can just be overall. That people who feel like their communities have died, people who feel that the system is suddenly rigged against them, because it has been, frankly. Um, I think that th that kind of long-run feeling that not only is it the case that I can't think about how I make a life better for myself, but I can't think about how I'm going to make a life better for my kids. I think it's that lack of hope and the kind of anger that comes from feeling that um, some people in the system must be getting very wealthy and some people in the system, as hard as they work, can't make a go of it. I think that those feelings um, can lead people to decide to go to the bar instead. Mm -hmm. So these metrics don't do a very good job of explaining the uptick in deaths of despair. And you discuss in the book other factors. We've touched on them a little bit. I would kind of boil them down to a loss of meaning. And by that, I mean the inability to hope for a meaningful life, to progress through your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that hope is incredibly important and that if people lose hope that things will get better for them or their family or for the people that they love, that puts them at high risk. And currently in the U.S., it's the case that this BA, no BA divide is, is getting worse. And more recent work that we're, we're just finishing up now, um, Angus and I are showing that that between races, the life expectancy um, numbers, which used to be much greater between races, irrespective of education, um, the between races gaps have closed by education. So blacks and whites with a BA look a lot more like each other now than they look like people of the same race without a BA. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for people without a BA. They used to look a lot more like people of the same race with a BA, but now they look much more like people without a BA, regardless of race. So race has given way to class, we think, in terms of predictors of, of how well people's lives are going. Um, the great um, political philosopher Michael Sandel at Harvard has a new book, looking at the meritocracy and thinking about the fact that, you know, there are winners and losers in this meritocracy. 
And people who haven't been to college, um, um, in turn, they either are angry at the world, thinking that, um, you know, the system was rigged against them, and angry at themselves. And people who have been to college can be incredibly self-satisfied, thinking, well, everybody had a shot at this. If people didn't take their shot, well, you know, well, too bad for them. But that's actually, you know, the idea that people have equal access to higher education is ridiculous. And the idea that we all start on the same starting line, which, you know, from the time I was in first grade, it was drilled into us, we're all on the same starting line. Well, that's no more true now than it was, you know, when I was a kid. So we think that um, there's much to be done to try to um, uh, rebuild a society where people's have, uh, people are respected um, for the kind of work that they do, regardless of the kind of work that they do. It's much easier in Europe. You don't have to have gone to college to have a job in which you feel like you have a lot of respect and ha you have respect for oneself as well. Um, the BA is not the be-all and end-all, but in the U.S., that has become the dividing line. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about possible solutions. Solution might be a strong word here, but measures that can be taken in order to alleviate some of the pain and perhaps reverse the increase in depths of in deaths of despair. Can you talk a little bit about what you think might be done? Oh, absolutely. Um one of the things that we haven't talked about yet, uh, but we spend time in the book talking about as well, these increases in deaths from drugs and alcohol and suicide are happening in the U.S., but they're not happening in other rich countries for the most part. Scotland is an exception, but for the most part, Europeans have not had to struggle with this. Now, they've seen globalization. They've seen automation. What's different in the U.S.? relative to these other countries. And the opioid epidemic is certainly number one. These other countries were smart enough and uh, their uh, systems work well enough that they protected their citizens from this horrible prescription drug epidemic that swept through America. So that's number one. But number two is our healthcare system. In the U.S., we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. But we have, uh, using a lot of different metrics, among the worst health in the rich world. Our life expectancy is lower than any of the other rich countries. If you look at morbidity, that is ill health, our, our metrics are lower as well. How can it be the case that we're spending so much more and yet people's health at, um, is so much poorer? And we think that we need real reform in the healthcare system in large part because the way we fund our healthcare system is part of what's grinding down people at the bottom of the distribution. We have this incredibly expensive system. We've tied it to employment. Employers have to, have to pay their share of healthcare premia 
for health insurance for their workers, and those premiums have gone through the roof. It's $21,000 a year for a family policy now, on average, for an employer who has to pay 70% of that. If I've got a low-wage worker, I can't pay them and pay their premium. They're just not worth that much to us as a firm. So I outsource those jobs. So the the jobs that have become outsourced, which are in food, food and security and the motor pool and um, janitorial services, all of those jobs where I used to belong to a company, now I belong to the Albright Cleaning Company, who doesn't give one whit about me. Um, if I get sick, I'm out. I'm not getting benefits. So part of the grinding down of and uh, of workers and the reason real wages haven't risen for this group is because it's all that money is being sucked up into a really expensive healthcare system that's not delivering, you know, the world's best healthcare. So we think real healthcare reform as heavy as a lift as that would be would go a long way toward helping us um, uh, uh, bring uh, uh, better wages, bring better quality of life to people, working people at the bottom of the distribution. Mm -hmm. What would that reform look like? And let me also say that I can easily imagine somebody saying, yes, that sounds good, but in the United States, and this is not me speaking, by the way, this is my critic, we should be free to choose whatever healthcare we want, and we should be free to choose it or not choose it. And that's the American way. So how could you convince my critic that the American way is not a good way? That's a, uh, <laughs> well, uh, healthcare insurance, which everybody needs, um, can only work if two things happen. One, everybody has to be in the system. And two, there has to be cost control in the system. All the other countries of the rich world make that happen. The U.S. is the only rich country where that's where that has not happened, and we're paying a really high price for that. So um, I'm I, I'm not actually advocating any particular health system, like going to the National Health Service that the U.K. has, or going to the system that Germany has. Every country does it differently but they all do it better than we're doing it. And none of them are tying it to employers. So, um, and we think that one of the things that COVID did was it, it, it shone a light on the fact that it's such a lousy way to uh, cover people. When at the beginning of the crisis, you know, 20 million people lose their jobs and a very large fraction of them lose their health insurance at the same time, at the same time that we're having a, a health epidemic, um, it just shows that it's, it's really a, a, a crazy system. Uh, the fact that our drugs cost so much more now than they cost in other countries, the fact that the medical devices that come out of the same factories cost a third in France what they cost in the U.S. 
are the fact that hospitals have been merging and merging, and every time hospitals merge, they raise their prices. You know, there's something wrong with this picture. Um, and we think that uh, uh, it's going to be hard to see real reform, given that it's so powerful now that the healthcare industry has five lobbyists for every member of Congress. So they have a lot of people in Washington to protect their interests and do their bidding. But possibly, possibly the COVID epidemic may be enough when people start getting medical bills that they cannot pay. Now, a lot of the medical bills are supposed to be covered if they're COVID related, but uh, stories um, of people who have ended up in the hospital and now are facing very large medical bills keep showing up in the kinds of newspapers that report such things. And maybe if enough people in the middle of the distribution begin to think, whoa, this is what's happening here. Why does this cost so much? Why am I getting stuck with this? Maybe there'll be discussion about real reform. Uh, just to tell an anecdote, a friend of mine's mother was in a nursing home and she tested positive for COVID. So by state mandate, she was moved to a hospital. Uh, she kept taking the test, which is not particularly accurate. And even though she was asymptomatic, she seemed fine. She's very old um, and also suffers from dementia. They had to keep her in the hospital for 30 days. He showed me the bill. It was $300,000. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm laughing, but I usually, I, I should know. be crying. I, exactly. you know, I just like, what? <laughs> no, it's, it's so, I think the problem with health insurance too is that it's incredibly expensive, but it's also incredibly complicated. So when people see their paycheck and they see that something's been deducted for health insurance, they, they think this is really complicated. They shrug and they go off and they think about something else. And what, we're, and what we're going to have to do is get enough people to begin to focus on the fact that this is a this is a system that's miserable. This this is not a system that the free market knows how to handle well. The best one of the best economists um, of the entire 20th century was an economist named Ken Arrow. and uh, he proved a lot of Adam Smith's theories about you know, what the free market can do and how it can do it and the wonders of it. But when he's looked at health, the health care, he came back and said, health care is not something that we can let the market handle. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I often think about this because, you know, when people get sick who don't have health insurance, and I know a lot of them because I work with people who are, you know, in the throes of various addictions and so forth, they 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 go to the emergency room where they're taken care of because the fact of the matter is we're not just going to let people die we're just not going to do it <laughs> and so if you show up at the hospital they're going to take care of you somebody absorbs those costs i mean, i suspect it's me <laughs> yes no, it certainly is it, it's it most certainly is it's us one of the things that's also happened is that you know, uh, medicaid right which provides health insurance for uh, poorer people is the costs are split between the federal government and the state government. Well, the state governments to pay their share of Medicaid for which prices keep going up and up and up, 
the only way that the states can do that is to take money out of a different uh, pot. So the once great state university systems are unable to provide the kinds of educations that used to give uh, poor kids like me a leg up. Um, they just don't have the money. They have to increase tuitions, um, which put it out of reach for a lot of kids. I mean, it's funny you mentioned this because I was, I'm was i from Kansas originally, so I follow what goes on in Kansas. And at the University of Kansas, the regents just decided that they can pretty much fire anybody they want. If you have tenure or not, it doesn't matter. And, you know, they, of course, say financial exigency. I can't really pronounce that word, but you know the word I'm talking about. Um, and, and they're not wrong. They, they, there is no money. <laughs> it's there's just no money and so what are you going to do and and yeah it's a it's a terribly hard problem i do want to say before we continue that one of the great merits of this book is that you are scrupulously neutral there is no platform in i mean there is no politicking in this book um i just want to make sure readers understand that yeah we didn't yeah we thought that the, the the data really speak for themselves in that we're not advocating any particular reform, although we do advocate for reform. Um, we also think like as one of the, so we think reform of the healthcare industry is one of the things that's, that would help uh, stop money from being funneled out of regular people's pockets into the pockets of very wealthy pharma executives or device uh, manufacturer or device um, uh, makers. Another reform, though, that is really desperately needed, which is another very heavy lift, will be in education. You know, we need to find a system where, I mean, we don't advocate that, well, that this just means everybody needs to go to college. No, we think, you know, not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody's skill set is best served by college. We need to find ways to provide the, the education and the training that people need so that they can um um, take jobs where they can build really good lives for themselves. And right now, uh, uh, K through 12 education is pretty much laser focused on the uh, minority of students who are college bound. And for the students who aren't college bound, well, they're pretty much on their own. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we had somebody on the New Books Network who is part of a campaign. He works in manufacturing and has his entire life to beef up the way in which we do what we call internships or apprenticeships, because we have no systematic way to do this. In Germany, for example, they have a very robust state-sponsored apprenticeship system, and, and we have nothing like it. So uh, I, I mean, I, I'm all about the liberal arts, and I think college was great. I benefited from it, but it just isn't for everybody. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I was going yeah, to say, you probably, <laughs> if you've ever had the experience of calling a tradesman to work at your house, if you're good at it, you can do pretty well. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's, um, it, we, we, so we need to refocus our lenses there, I think. Um, that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also try to make college affordable for kids who do want to go. Um, and I think right now, the risk of spending a very large amount of money, maybe not making it, 
in which case you'd end up without a college diploma and with a pile of debt. You know, that risk is one that a lot of kids don't feel, rightly don't feel they can take. So I think trying to do what we can to help kids understand how they um, can apply for um, loans or how they can, um, or um, loans that aren't going to kill them if they, um, when they have to pay them back, we need reform there as well. So we, this is, a, as an economist, I have to tell you, uh, the premium for going to college, like on average, how much more you earn, that premium over a high school degree, back in 1980, that premium was 40% for zero. By 2000, it had doubled to 80%, which is enormous. Now that kind of price signal, the idea that like, wow, the, you know, the, the rewards of going to college have over a high school degree have doubled should have elicited a lot more kids going to college. It's some more kids went to college, but not nearly as many as, um, would have had there not been real barriers to, to that happening. So I'm all about the apprenticeship system, but I also think we need to find ways to help kids who would like to go to college get there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what you point out is very interesting. It's still only the case that about a third of Americans graduate from college. I think most people don't realize this, especially, I mean, I'll just speak about myself. I do know some people that didn't graduate from college, but not very many. I mean, I meet them in AA and so on and so forth, but... I tend to think the world is, it looks like my social circle and, and it doesn't at all. <laughs> yeah. No, and our, our bubbles. Yeah. Not, it does not, not look like my social bubbles, But our, yeah. our social bubbles have become, it used to be the case that people within the same community, you know, there'd be a doctor and a lawyer and um, uh, uh, people who worked in the factory, but they all lived together. And now that's not the case. And so our worlds have become much more divided as well. Yeah, that's a very sobering thing. I mean, I'm very grateful that I can go and mix with a group of people. They all happen to be alcoholics or recovering alcoholics, but they are from many different areas of life. Let's put it that way. So that, that's a blessing. But I take on board what you say about bubbles. And, and it is pretty shocking that that price signal, as you say, did not move a bunch of people into college. It should have, um, but, but it did not. And that's uh, a very interesting thing. Well, Anne, it seems like we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> One, yeah, we have a lot of work to do, Marsha. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, you know, um, I, I, I remain hopeful. Because I think these are problems that we we could think about um, um, uh, whittling away at some parts of them that could make life better for you know the the minority the, the majority of Americans who are currently finding it hard to hold body and soul together. We yeah, could, well, and we must. Yeah, your well-informed voice carries a lot more weight than mine, but I, I will associate myself with that. I'm hopeful too. I mean, we have been through a lot in the United States, and we have faced uh, very significant challenges, and we have consistently risen to them. And I think that we will do it here, too. At least I hope that we will. 
Um, and thank you very much for being on the show. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your current project? So currently what I'm doing is I'm looking, I'm comparing what's going on in the U.S. to what's going on in the countries of the United Kingdom. Um, because uh, it's, you know, it's a sister country to the U.S. or a set of countries. And um, the big question is whether they have escaped from the kinds of things that are happening in the U.S. or whether uh, it's going to happen in the U.K. but with a lag. Um, the only, one of the only other rich countries that has the kinds of drug overdose deaths that rates that we have is Scotland. So we're trying to see what is it about what's going on in Scotland that makes it look more like the U.S. than it looks like London, for example. So uh, it's um, it, we think oftentimes looking elsewhere can help us understand ourselves better. So that's that's currently what I've got on the go while I'm, um, you know, at home uh, day in, day out, day in, day out, day in, day out. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Anne Case about her book, which was co-written with Angus Deaton, called Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. It's out from Princeton University Press. Uh, Anne, thank you for being on the show. It's been my pleasure, Marshall. Thank you so much. All right. And to everyone listening, I hope you tune in again. Thanks a lot.